Welcome back to the Ridley Institute podcast for our second conversation on Christian faith and discipleship in our secular age. Uh, My name is Sam, I'm your host, and this podcast is a resource of the Ridley Institute here at St. Andrew's Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Welcome to those of you who are already part of our Ridley community, glad you've joined us. And if you stumbled upon this resource uh, with no direct connection to our work here at Ridley, uh, you probably ought to understand what we're here to do. The Ridley Institute is committed to equipping evangelical churches, especially but not only in our Anglican orbit, to bless the local church with robust, God-honoring theological formation. Growth in Christian maturity requires growth in the gospel and therefore solid theological education in and for the local church is mission critical for good discipleship. The church can neither stand firm on the gospel nor minister in the power of the gospel if it is not equipped to persevere in the truth of the gospel. So that's what we're here to do, equip you to persevere in the faith. And to that end, we're serving up some of the richest resources we can get our hands on. Our goal to support you as you seek to apply the truth of the gospel to every area of life from Monday to Saturday. Well, today I'm joined by Dr. Catherine Wright. Dr. Wright is Associate Professor of Biblical and Theological Studies at Bethel University in St. Paul, Minnesota, where she teaches New Testament with a focus on Luke's gospel and a keen interest in the subject of spiritual formation. Dr. Wright has written a marvelous book published during the throes of 2020 with InterVarsity Academic, uh, entitled Spiritual Practices of Jesus, Learning Simplicity, Humility, and Prayer with Luke's Earliest Readers. Dr. Wright, welcome. Thank you so much. Sure. I I appreciate the chance to be here. (laughs) I'm so glad you're here. Can I just say that as I was um, going over my introductory notes and preparing, I kept saying uh, InterVarsity Pandemic, and I had to correct myself (laughs) and say, no, no, that's not right. Um, Can I I just start by saying that uh, spiritual practices of Jesus really got under my skin, and I mean that in the most positive way, um, in exactly the way a book like this ought to do. So in, in my private prayers, my Bible reading, my conversation, um, my, uh, my reflections and conversation with the Lord. So in addition to being a sharp study in reception history, which uh, or we'll define terms for listeners here in just a minute. In addition to that, this book also renewed my sense of the inexhaustible riches to be found at the feet of Jesus. So um, I get the impression that that is praise that would mean a lot to you. Um, it, mission accomplished in, in well, my praise reading. praise God for that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, um, so, Dr. Wright, just before we dig into the book, let, let me ask you to define some terms for our listeners, okay? Um, of course. You locate your book uh, in an approach to the study of Scripture called reception criticism. So can you yes. tell us, just in simple terms, what reception criticism is and um, how might this help our listeners understand what your book is seeking to do? Sure. Well, reception criticism traces the way in which uh, specific groups of readers or even specific readers understand text through time. Uh, so with my book, I was actually doing a couple of different time types of reception criticism. I was looking at the classical type of reception criticism that we typically hear about, 
uh, in college and seminary where I was taking specific biblical texts mm -hmm. and then looking at how the church fathers interpreted those exact texts. Oh, great. Okay. Um, and then I was also, in a third of the book, looking at a hypothetical first reception. Hmm. And uh, this is following the work of Jouse. Um, but anyway, uh, what it's doing is it's asking about the uh, possible expectations that first readers would have had when they approached Luke's gospel. We want to ask the kinds of questions that Luke's readers would have asked. And in order to do that, uh, Jouse thought, we need to join the cultural world as much as is possible. Hmm. So what do we do to join the cultural world? Well, one of the things we might do is we might want to familiarize ourselves with some of the works that not necessarily would have been written during the first century, but would have been popular during the first century, mm -hmm. uh, would have been read during the first century. So um, we might look at Xenophon um, and uh, Plato. We might look at some of Luke's rough contemporaries uh, like um, Plutarch. Um, we might look at some Jewish writers like Philo and Josephus. All of these writers speak to the cultural world, mm -hmm. and they allow us to ask questions that are a little bit closer to the kinds of questions that Luke's target audience would have asked. So obviously we read the text through our own lenses and experiences, um, but what we want to try to do as much as possible, and this isn't an exact science, but what we want to try to do um, is to ask the kinds of questions that will um, allow us to experience the text in a way that was similar to how the first readers of Luke experienced it. And just by way of example, a lot of times when biblical scholars are approaching the text, um, we kind of stand over it as an objective authority and pick it apart um, and try to uh, just figure out what the historical meaning is. And then we close the Bible and we move on our merry way through life and we think about our um, activity, our hermeneutical activity as being finished. But actually, um, I believe the biblical text was meant not only to inform, but also to transform. I think Luke's audience would have been primed to read the text in that manner. So I think part of the process of us joining them is to take off this, this hat where we stand as authority over the text and instead with those first readers stand under the authority of the text allowing ourselves to be spiritually formed by it that is enormously helpful so it so it i let me let me pose the next question this way okay the the book deals with three uh, central topics right simplicity humility and prayer. So tell yeah. us just a little bit about why you went with these three particular topics. I studied under Charles Talbert. I got my doctorate at Baylor University in mm. Texas, and I studied under Charles Talbert, and he had done some work in spirituality um, in the Gospels. It was a shared interest of ours, so I really wanted to do something in that area. So I went to Luke looking for um, the most obvious themes that specifically were Lucan. 
Um, and two were just immediately obvious. There's volumes written on each, uh, prayer and simplicity. We mm. know that both of those, um, not just because of the number of books written on the topics, but because of the way in which um, Luke uh, edits his sources because of what he includes, chooses to include in his gospel and what he leaves out. We know those are really important topics. Mm -hmm. For instance, there are a lot of parab parables that are specific to Luke. Um, and those parables, many of them have to do um, with simplicity, like the parable about Lazarus and the rich man. Um, or they have to do with prayer, like the parable of the um, widow who goes to the unjust judge with persevering prayer it, mm. in a persevering way. Um, so Luke's special material deals with these topics. And then also, uh, so a little bit of history for our listeners who maybe don't have this. Uh, Luke is one of the synoptic gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all share quite a bit of material in parallel form. They have the same stories. Um, they have a lot of the same material. Um, and if you compare them, you can see that Luke is using some of this traditional material. For instance, he uses the story of Jesus' baptism, but specifically he couches that in a context of prayer. The other synoptics don't do that. Um, when we look at the story of Jesus choosing his disciples, we see only in Luke, Jesus is in prayer all night, the night before he chooses his disciples. With the story of the transfiguration, Luke again puts that in a co the context of prayer. He mentions it twice, hmm. just as he does actually before uh, Jesus goes to choose the disciples in Luke. So we know that these are very important themes for Luke. Um, then also, just as I was going through um, with the theme of humility, I just kept noticing how Jesus would continually check the disciples for their status-seeking behavior. Mm -hmm. Jesus is continually critiquing the religious leaders for loving superficial honors um, more than uh, just simply fulfilling their jobs the way they should. Um, and so these three themes just naturally emerged from the text. Yeah. So these um, these three practices, or or if you like, virtues or habits, I I, I notice in my own pastoral work and my own personal walk with the Lord that they're three of the most intractable and frustrating areas of the spiritual life because I think um, they're really hard to fake. <laughs> yeah. Um, they're they're not. Uh, if I can put it this way, they're not easily prescribed. Right there, are mm -hmm. some things that Jesus, um, and I think I think you you maybe hinted this at some point in, in the book. There are some things that Jesus told his disciples, and he could say, "Go and do likewise." And then there were things that had to be shown. I mean, just to drop a hundred dollar phrase, it's Michael Polanyi's tacit knowledge transfer. It's some stuff that just doesn't come across in uh, words. They have to be conveyed by Jesus' example. Um, right. So is this is this something that that Luke? has in mind as or something like this as he's writing his gospel is he underscoring for, for you know for his readers something about Jesus that we also need to underline absolutely um, so when Luke summarizes his own gospel in his own words at the beginning of Acts, he talks about it, his first volume, as being about all that Jesus did and taught. Mm. That unity of life and teaching 
was a critical piece of what it meant to be a good teacher. A good teacher wasn't just someone who could lecture well. A good teacher was one who would be able to live out and exemplify um, what he was teaching. And Jesus does specifically that. Luke is very intentional about showing us that unity of life and teaching in Jesus, and specifically in that those three areas. Just one example, uh, in Luke chapter 11, where we have the Lord's Prayer, the disciples see Jesus at prayer and then ask to be taught to pray. And then immediately after that, we have the teaching on the Lord's Prayer. Um, in uh, the passion narrative of Luke, Jesus tells the disciples um, to uh, pray and not fall victim to temptation. Then we see him in Gethsemane doing just that. And then he goes back to the disciples and says the same thing. So we have that ABA structure, just this incredible unity of Jesus' life and teachings. And we see that in all three areas. Actually, one of the things that I noticed as I was doing my research um, into the cultural world of the day is that many of the ideal heroes who would have been celebrated in the first century, even in these same three areas of prayer, simplicity, and humility, show a unity of life and teaching. Mm. Um, so looking at some of Plutarch's heroes, for instance, Plutarch has this one hero, Numa, um, who is legendary for his lifestyle of prayer. He goes off by himself uh, to commune with the gods. He has such an, a, a close relationship with the gods that legends arise <laughs> as to that close relationship. Um, so, and then he, uh, based in his own personal practice, then tries to instill those same contemplative habits in his people, in the citizens, um, telling them that before they engage in religious behavior, they need to look at their motivations and make sure um, that they are quiet and not distracted by other things. So again, you just have that hand-in-hand -hand life and teaching. In fact, Plutarch, when he is describing Numa, um, he actually describes him quite specifically as this kind of ideal hero. So hmm. starting with Plato, um, there were many who thought that an ideal form of government um, would not be uh, someone who just referred to a set of written laws, but they thought an ideal form of government would be having some person who had such a degree of unity Hmm. with the gods that they could actually um, embody that virtue for the people to copy. They even said that would be a way of saving their people in a sense. Um, yeah. And uh, we see Pl uh, Plato despaired of ever finding um, someone who could perfectly exemplify that. Um, but uh, Plutarch um, describe some ideal characters who get close, like Numa. And when he's describing Numa, he talks about him as the embodiment of specifically um, what Plato was talking about with this ideal philosopher king. And I honestly think that Luke is portraying Jesus in that way. Um, he is so tapped into uh, the cultural world of his day. Um, and he emphasizes so greatly that Jesus is one who teaches through his person um, with this perfect unity of life and action.
uh, life and teaching that um, I, I think that's probably on his horizon as well. Hmm. So I, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but that phrase philosopher king is so interesting. And it's, this will get to a bigger question. You know, in, in Christian parlance, we often use the phrase servant king, right, to, re, to right. refer to Jesus. So I, so I think this leads me to it. This is a loaded question. You can go in whatever direction <laughs> you, want to, you want to go with. Um, it's a big one. We've talked about these three subjects, simplicity, humility, prayer, and we've talked just a little bit about the literary world within which Luke's gospel needs to be set. Okay, so um, and maybe you want to outline more of that in your answer to this, but you don't need to uh, if you don't want to. So here's the question. What new ideas or contributions did Jesus bring to the table in this overall literary world? And sort of, I, I guess the question is on two levels. More generally, what did he bring to this literary world you know, that, that embrace both Jewish and Gentile modes of thought? Um, and then more particularly, what did he bring that was new to the, to the Jewish literary world? Um, if you like, it, does the Luke and Jesus, uh, Jesus and Luke's gospel, um, is there something new that the servant king brings to the philosopher king model? Yeah, I think so. Um, first of all, when I started to get into the research, I was amazed at the number of parallels. Um, mm. They existed where I thought they wouldn't. Mm. Um, and specifically when it came down to some of the motivations for prayer, um, when uh, we have Socrates being described by some of the ancient writers, um, he is one who uh, prays in order to become a better philosopher. He's one who talks about the goodness of the gods, which is a theme in Luke and a motivating factor for prayer in Luke. Um, so that was kind of surprising. Mm -hmm. um, but Jesus invites us into the intimacy of his prayer life with his father uh, in Luke chapter 11. So that takes it to a different level. Um, we see some similarities in the area of simplicity. Um, at one point, Seneca uh, is talking to a would-be philosopher who is being tempted to go and get a job. Um, and, Wouldn't want uh, that. <laughs> Seneca tells him, seek philosophy first, even if you starve. So we have kind of a parallel um, in uh, Luke chapter 12, where Jesus tells the disciples to uh, seek the kingdom of God, but he doesn't say seek the kingdom of God even if you starve. He tells them to seek the kingdom of God and these things will be added to you as well. And then goes on to depict this portrait of a God who is intimately aware of our needs and who cares about us and loves us and meets those needs. Mm. Um, so that is different. Um, I think of the three areas, uh, prayer, humility, and simplicity, uh, the piece where there was the sharpest difference was in the area of humility. Mm. Um, we do find humility in some of the ideal leaders in the first century. Um, th they uh, will not... Um, Glor they don't glorify their own actions. Um, they uh, don't like the external trappings of their position. Mm. Um, like a true philosopher is not one who glories in a philosopher's robes, but um, is really one in terms of who they are. 
Um, and uh, so you do find some of those uh, parallels, but um, we find some differences as well, because of course uh, we have the incarnational model of Jesus being humiliated while in the first century you would find some who embrace um, a modest lifestyle, embrace um, a lifestyle of not ascribing to themselves maybe honors that they don't have. Hmm. You don't have the same willingness to be humiliated. Um, and that's what we have through this incarnational model. Jesus um, asks us to pick up our cross and follow him, uh, not only in the path of pain and suffering, but in whatever humiliation may come our way as a result as well. Yeah, yeah. So let's just pause over that phrase, incarnational model, um, that idea of Jesus doesn't just call us to lay aside glory as he did, but but to take up humiliation in this in this sense, to take up humility. And it seems to me that that idea is at the heart of all the Gospels. Right. Um, but I, I'd be keen just for our listeners to hear a little bit about how it shapes Luke's Gospel in particular. And the, so the background of this is, if I were going to turn around and preach through Luke's Gospel, um, you know, often what I'll do is, you know, I might get a, a more analytical commentary, um, something a little more pastoral, um, something kind of um, uh, theology or dogmatics or something like that, and then something related to, to spiritual formation or an issue, a key issue of kind of biblical theology that arises through the course of the book. And I, um, the more that I've thought about your book, the more that I thought it would fall into that fourth category is that a choice that, that really gives a coherent vision of what Luke is after. Um, so how does that, how does that model, this, that uh, incarnational model shape Luke's gospel in particular? Well, Jesus presents himself as a servant, and he lives his life as a servant. He makes a sharp distinction between um, the kings of the world uh, who lord it over others. Jesus instead embodies what it means to be a person of humility, um, to be a person of simplicity. He has no place to lay his head. Uh, he does not charge a fee for his <laughs> ministry. He embodies this. Uh, he embodies what it is to be a person of prayer, um, showing the disciples through his own lifestyle, his relationship with God. So it's a very different model than just kind of standing at a distance and saying, go, go do that. Mm -hmm. um, Jesus presents himself as one who serves, and his entire life is a model of servanthood. He's a king, but again, he follows a very different path from worldly kings. His path to kingship instead is one of humility and service. There's so many directions that we could go, that we could go in these kind of prefatory questions. I would love to talk about, you know, virtue theory and, and exemplarist, uh, you know, exemplarist ethics, or uh, or for heaven's sake, to talk about what Paul did in his ministry, being a, a parent. I, we're not going to go there. We're going to dig into the guts of the book, if that's okay. Um, so, can we turn to these three practices? Uh, let's start with simplicity. Um, my question really is very simple. Was Jesus simply setting the scene for Marie Kondo? <laughs> is is the Luke in, <laughs> is the Luke in Jesus, you know, Jesus as he's presented in Luke's gospel, is he simply telling us to get rid of 
anything that doesn't spark joy or is there something <laughs> is there is there something more going on yeah absolutely not um I think our society today um, views minimalism as a way of living, you know, maybe their their fullest or best life individually. Um, it's a very individual sort of thing. Like this is a way in which I can um, uh, live in a way that makes me happy. Uh, but simplicity in the gospels is other centered and is kingdom centered it's centered on god as well hmm. um simplicity doesn't just have to do with you know arranging my living room furniture in a certain way or getting rid of a certain amount of possessions that cause me anxiety so that i can have a more streamlined process of getting ready in the morning or what have you <laughs> Um, but instead, uh, simplicity is living a lifestyle of generosity and imitation of our generous God. Um, mm. It is caring for the poor around us. Um, I think uh, it is quite simple in Luke. I think uh, Luke teaches us that we need to use our resources to care for the poor. I think when we look at the earliest Christian community in Acts, we see them doing just that. Mm. Um but I think those texts are very difficult for us. And so when we think about simplicity, we might think of it um, in terms of ways that might just streamline, streamline the way we want to live our lives. Um, we do it for us and not necessarily for others. Hmm. So and we, we automatically have an, an um, how to put this, individualist frame of reference. Right, right? exactly. Not one exactly. rooted in the church. So can, can we, could you just... And maybe give our listeners some of uh, of the kind of practical biblical principles, particularly. I mean, it, it becomes very clear. It's funny. I was reading Chrysostom on his uh, homilies on Philippians for something else as I was reading your book. And so, so much dovetails. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Naturally. Um, and uh, so, so can, can you can you bring out some of those practical principles that people would would be able to, you know, take out of this baby steps towards applying this Lucan material? Yeah. Um, well, I think when we look, you brought up Chrysostom, I think when we look at the Gospel of Luke through the lens of the Church Fathers, we instantly encounter the difference between their world and ours. Mm -hmm. um, so Cyril of Alexandria, for, instant, for instance, um, is dealing uh, with the issue of whether or not a Christian will give up everything, all of their possessions to follow Jesus. That's not something that we really even encounter in our discussions. Um, that's sort of off the table. When we think about living a life of simplicity, we just think about um, giving from our excess to those in need. But. Uh, Cyril of Alexandria is having a different conversation. Um, and so he says that God has <laughs> That's a supplied, way to put it, yeah. <laughs> he says that God has supplied a means of salvation for the rich. Hmm. Um, because even if they are not willing, he says, to completely dispossess themselves, at least they can give generously to the poor. I mean, quite often we are nowhere close to that. Hmm. Um, so again, I think uh, using our resources for the benefit of those around us, understanding um, the limitations of money, I think, 
Um, and, and this is something that's rooted in the uh, cultural world of Luke as well. Um, many of the philosophers of Luke's day would have been having these same kinds of conversations, mm -hmm. understanding that true riches um, did not exist in material things, but true riches exists elsewhere in virtue, etc. Mm -hmm. um, and then generosity. Um, the Many of the early church fathers um, looked at the wealthy as holding the grain houses of the poor with respect to their goods. Um, and it is their responsibility to distribute those to those in need. Um, so I think our real problem uh, with Luke's text is, is not that they're complex. I think we are bringing so much of our materialistic worldview to the text that it makes it very difficult for us to actually hear what Luke is saying. Mm. Can, can I just interject there? It, it, sure. In, in my, my morning prayers, I uh, stumbled across a, a prayer this morning, which... Um, uh, made made the point that uh, just as our our sufferings and our difficulties uh, are given or some of them again great mystery of course but some of them given for for the trying of our faith so too our our riches and our and our gifts um, and uh, that that struck me very profoundly on the other side of your book that the sort of testing of the genuineness of our of our faith, yeah, uh, it it works both ways. On the here are the happy things that are coming our way, and here are the here's the tough stuff. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I think we could see that in a couple of ways. Um, the testing of our faith in terms of our responsibility to step up and use our possessions for the kingdom of God, and also. Um, the testing of our faith in terms of possessions just being burdensome. You find mm. that as a lens through which a lot of Luke's contemporaries uh, discuss money. Yeah, yeah. So um, your discussion of poverty in, in the first part of the book uh, on simplicity, it flows wonderfully into this discussion of children in the second part, which is on humility. So... Um, can, let's start first with some general thoughts on what humility is understood to be in Luke's gospel. Actually, before I ask you about the kids, let's just do that. Can we establish kind of a working definition of humility? Um, well, I think uh, in the gospel, again, it has to have that incarnational model. Uh, Jesus comes as one who serves, and we have to follow that. That is the path to humility, um, living a life of servanthood. Um, if we look at humility through the lens of the first century, uh, there are a number of similarities. So, um, you know, Jesus in Luke's gospel uh, speaks sharply against the disciples because they uh, want to, they're arguing with each other about who should have the title of best disciple, or they want to sit at Jesus' left and right in his kingdom. He critiques the religious leaders because uh, they uh, want to be content with the external trappings of their profession hmm. um, and are glorying in that. 
Um, and with those, you would actually find quite similar um, ideas coming out of Luke's culture, coming out of Luke's first century culture, um, talking about philosophers who um, should be should should simply act as philosophers instead of enjoying the trappings of philosophy. I think it's Epictetus that talks a little bit about that. Um, and uh, if you want to be so, a philosopher, be a philosopher. Right, exactly. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. yeah. Be one. Don't just enjoy the trappings of, of the lifestyle. Um, mm. And so you find some similarities there. But again, um, with that distinctively Lucan focus, Jesus' whole life is a model of servanthood, and we are to live our lives in imitation of that. Yeah. So to, to the children now. <laughs> so uh, tell us a bit about how children, there's, again, um, I, I hopefully, good listener, you will pick up this book, read it, you'll get to the bit on children, it's marvelous, but um, uh, Dr. Wright, tell us a, a little bit about how children were understood during Jesus' day and why it was to children that Jesus announced the receipt of the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, so oftentimes when we think of children in our context and culture, we might think of a child as being one who is innocent or something like that, but that's our baggage that we're bringing to the text. In the first century— Some of, some of us have been disabused of that notion <laughs> more than others. Okay. Yeah, that's true. Uh, in the first century, a child was one who lacked status. And that's really the problem that the disciples have, right? Um, they want, again, that title of best disciple. They want to sit at Jesus' left and right in his kingdom. Um, they want to be important. Um, and so Jesus elevates a child who lacks status as one who is fit for the kingdom. Because if the disciples are to be part of the kingdom, they must follow Jesus on that path to servanthood. Mm. Um, Jesus' lifestyle is one of humility and service. The disciples, quite frankly, are heading in a different direction with their desires. So a child is a perfect example of one who lacks status. The disciples are status-seeking. They need to reject that and follow Jesus instead. Hmm. Wow. Well, so just further on the point of humility. A couple times in the book, you use language like a, a false self as opposed to true self or a false sense of self, um, presumably as, as opposed to a, a true sense of self. Can you unpack what you mean by this? Um, seems like it gets to the idea of integrity, word matching deed, but maybe, yeah. th maybe there's a lot more that you can unpack and show us. Yeah, I think a lot of times um, we like to present a portrait of ourselves to the world that is really put together. Um, you know, we want to seem professional. We want to seem like we have our act together and we present that self to the world. The problem is where that is quite different from who we really are. And if we hide our true selves and then buy into this model that we're projecting to the world, there is absolutely that lack of integrity. Um, and one of the problems, I'll just use a biblical story kind of to unpack this. Um, if we look at the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, 
the tax collector, uh, is one who does exhibit a true sense of self. He recognizes his bankruptcy before God and falls down before God confessing his sin. In contrast, the tax collector, the Pharisee, um, has bought into this portrait of himself that he's projecting to the world. Um, he starts this elaborate prayer, and instead of praising God, he ends up praising himself for all his religious accomplishments. And at the end of the story, we're told that the tax collector goes home justified instead of the Pharisee. Hmm. One of the difficult pieces with a lack of humility is that if there isn't a true sense of self, then there isn't a self from which to repent. So there's it's it's kind of a hopeless scenario. If you have one, um, if you have a person who has such a complete lack of integrity that who they project to the world has very little in common with who they really are. They really don't have a self from which to repent. I think maybe that's why humility is so important for many of the church fathers. It's the mother of the virtues. Mm -hmm. It is that foundational virtue, the foundational virtue, upon all upon which all the other virtues are built. Um, and so, yeah, I think a lot of times in our society today, we don't really think it's that big of a deal. Um, if someone is a little bit full of themselves, it might almost be something comedic. Um, but I think the church fathers would have a different view. Um, they would understand, again, that is, if, that is, there, if there isn't that true sense of self, is there really hope for that person to repent? Yeah, it it does. There is a there is a deep biblical irony to the picture of Dorian Gray that just that rings so true to to repentance uh, in the in this Christian perspective, right? There there could be this one image projected on the outside, and then there can be a deeply distorted but hidden inner image. I mean, of course, in that story, it's flipped. So you've got the painting, which just gets, um, you know grislier and grislier, but all right, let me switch gears um, because I, I have to tell you a story. I was, I was in a Bible study group the other night and I was asked if I could put any one question to Jesus, what it would be. And I, I had your book fresh on my mind and a new question occurred to me that I'd uh, never thought of asking Jesus before. And I think significantly, it wasn't a question that could be satisfied with a, a statement. It was a request um, prompted by your book, it was it was this. If I could ask Jesus any question, what would what would it be? Um, my answer as of this moment, please could I watch you pray? Um, the final part of your book on which is on prayer is searching. Tell us about the dominant purpose of prayer in Luke's gospel. I think. Luke could really speak to our misunderstandings about prayer. I think a lot of times when we pray today, we kind of treat God like a Santa Claus in the sky and bring a laundry list of things that we want or think we want and need um, to God and expect God to answer those. Um, we get a very different portrait of prayer in the Gospel of Luke. If you look at the Lord's Prayer, it really centers on the kingdom of God. The disciples are to pray. Um, they are 
they are to pray for to become kingdom people. They are to pray for God's kingdom. And that's not just a prayer for God to establish the kingdom, but it's a, it's a prayer that anticipates their involvement. It's a prayer that anticipates that they will be getting on board with God's kingdom purposes. I think that's one of the key purposes of prayer that we find in Luke. It has to do with God's agenda. Now, we are bidden to pray for the things uh, that we need. That's part of the Lord's Prayer, too. But I think that for many of us, prayer kind of begins and ends there. And we are disconnected with the purpose and mission of God. I think one of the things that prayer can do for us is to reconnect us with the purpose and mission of God. Mm. I think that's a huge problem. Um, for contemporary Western Christians today because we have such a focus on ourselves. A lot of people today are just frustrated and sad and focused on themselves in a host of different ways, but connecting with the mission of God, what God is doing on earth, um, not only has the power to transform their lives, but um, really... It is effective. Um, another piece that we see in Luke is uh, people don't pray just to feel better, but God acts in response to prayer. Hmm. In Luke's gospel, there's a connection between prayer and the activity of God. We see it all the way through Luke. We see it all the way through Acts. God has chosen to act in response to prayer. I think another thing that we do today is we expect very little of God. We come to God again with these very um, sort of self-focused requests exclusively, but also we expect very little from God. We don't really expect God to act in response to our prayers, and we bring those lowered expectations into our spiritual lives. Um, I don't think the church fathers operated under that <laughs> scenario at all. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I think we have a lot to learn from them. We need to expect more from God. Mm. Um, we need to expect everything from God. Um, I think that uh, our prayer lives are too small because our God is too small. Mm. I do. I, I My... Sort of daily Bible reading takes me to, um, in Anglican speak, the the Venite, right? Psalm ninety five, and you've got, um, you've got this ending. Uh, of don't forget the wil- it's a warning. Don't forget the wilderness generation, you know, um, and it sets all of the, uh, it sets all of your reading of scripture, and your subsequent prayer in this context of you're going to be so tempted to get lured away by the shiny, stupid distraction. Keep your eyes raised. Um, and I mean, there's the context for that daily bread, right? And mm-hmm. keep, keep your eyes on, on the kingdom. Keep your eyes on the joy set before you. Um, that, that's been a meaningful thing for me uh, personally in teaching me that actually no, my re- I'm, I make wilderness requests. Right? <laughs> I make selfish things, uh, st- stupid, tiny requests. Very not all the time, but very often. Um, it's been a great tool for me to to do this kind of thing that you're talking about. So uh, our time is very close to running out. So I, I think I want to ask one more question, uh, which is this: You write 
that uh, Jesus, here's a quote, Jesus was, quote, the legendary philosopher king who could effect real change in people through his personal example, close quote. Elsewhere, you call Jesus a, a model for emulation to whom the Christian can be very personally and intimately apprenticed. So I suppose my question is, to whom is Luke holding Jesus up for emulation? And relatedly, did Luke expect every reader to be equipped with what he or she needed to emulate Jesus' example? Is, is, is everybody ready for apprenticeship? Okay, so I think, well, I answer that in terms of Luke's two-volume work. So the disciples themselves in Luke, just as we see in Mark and in Matthew, um, are pretty lost. They are not able to follow Jesus' teachings. But then looking at Luke's two-volume work, things really start to change at Pentecost. Mm. Um, and we have a spirit-fueled ability to look like Jesus. Luke intentionally shows us how the characters in Acts look like Jesus, and it's due to the power of the Holy Spirit. So in answer to your question, does Luke expect maybe a secular reader to be able to imitate Jesus? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think Luke's literary world can hold up um, ideal heroes as a model of virtue for people to follow, but Luke has a very specific Trinitarian lens, mm. um, and the path uh, to becoming like Jesus is through the power of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't happen without that. So uh, it's more than just we see Jesus doing um, you know, a virtuous action, and then we try to add that in our own strength and power to our lives. That happens only through the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't see the church um, operating uh, in an ability to imitate Jesus effectively until after Pentecost. So even if you look at Acts chapter 1, you've still got a confused group of people who are waiting for Jesus to set up an earthly kingdom. Hmm. Things don't really start to change until after Pentecost. That's helpful. Well, I, I, I think I'm looking at the clock. I think we've arrived at the end of our time. So uh, if you are someone with anything to learn on the subjects of simplicity, humility, and prayer, and I'm willing to bet that that maybe one or two of the listeners might be able to locate just a little bit of headroom for growth. Uh, if that's you, you will find great company at the feet of Jesus in Catherine Wright. Her book, again, is Spiritual Practices of Jesus, Learning Simplicity, Humility, and Prayer with Luke's Earliest Readers. And um, can I just encourage you to, there are study questions at the end of the book. So um, it is the perfect kind of thing to get a hold of and uh, grab a friend or two and read uh, read in community and bring it into practice together uh, with other believers. So Dr. Wright, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yes. If, uh, if you enjoyed the chat, please leave a glowing review. And if you have thoughts or questions or topics you'd like to see addressed, do email them to podcast at ridleyinstitute.com. Uh, the coming year is pretty well mapped out, but we'd love to hear your ideas as we build out this resource. 
Uh, Join us again next week for another conversation on Christian faith and discipleship in our secular age. I'll be talking with Eric Ortland, lecturer in Old Testament and Biblical Hebrew at Oak Hill Theological College in London. We'll be journeying with Eric into that most intractable book of the Old Testament, the book of Job, as we discuss his newly published book, Piercing Leviathan, God's Defeat of Evil in the Book of Job. Don't miss it. Thanks for listening. I'm Sam Forniker, and this has been the Ridley Institute Podcast.